the Tell Me Your Story, new paradigms for a new world. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Monday mornings at 1 a.m. streaming live at richarddugan.com. Podcasts are at richarddugan.com as well as on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and many other locations that folks are reposting our interviews to, and I thank you so much for doing that. We also encourage you to listen to the podcast because in most cases, we go much longer than just the, uh, the 50 minutes that the radio broadcast allows us. So we hope that you will take advantage of uh, the podcast. Go there and uh, uh, listen to the whole interview. Uh, you're going to miss something if you don't. We also encourage you, you're going to miss something if you don't go to our guest website. We'll be giving that to you shortly so that you can continue your evolutionary process, learning, growing, uh, transforming your life. And also, if you'd like to support our uh, the work we're doing, you like what we're doing here, you like the guests we have and the conversation we're having, please support us financially. We have PayPal and Patreon accounts for your uh, security as well as ours. And this is the year of 2020. It is the year of perfect vision, 2020, the year of perfect vision, where we want you to go within. We want you to spend time in contemplation. It doesn't have to be deep. You can do superficial contemplation. It's okay. But get to know yourself. Get to know who you are. Because knowing who you are is going to help you to find your life's purpose and to find those things that you really want in your life, those people you really want in your life, those experiences. We hope that you will do just that. Today's going to be a fun program. Uh, all of the pro I say that every week, don't I? It's a fun program. I love doing these shows because today we're going to be talking with a returning guest, Howard Bloom. He's written a book. Latest work is called Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me. It's a search for the soul in the power pits of rock and roll. Now, I know that some of my interviews of late have been a little astray, but I don't think this is that far off. I think it's going to uh, inspire and enlighten you. Uh, basically, um, our guest, who is, again, Howard Bloom, is based uh, in uh, New York, and uh, uh, he's been called the next in a lineage of uh, uh, seminar, uh, seminal thinkers. I, th I read that the first time, and I said seminar. Seminal thinkers, and uh, that uh, includes Newton, Darwin, Einstein, and Freud, uh, and we are certainly happy to have him back on the program. It's great to talk to you again, and in this case, see you again, because we're using Zoom to uh, communicate. Richard, it's terrific to actually see you visually <laughs> with eyeballs. I think, I think the last time was uh, on the phone, wasn't it? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so uh, give us a, a, a little primer. I, now, we're always talking about uh, the soul of self, you know, the higher self, if you will, the spirit, the essence that keeps the human physical body, some would say the meat sack, but that's kind of, I don't like that. Um, but when you start talking about a particular genre or area or industry or what have you, and you start talking about the soul of, and in this case, um, rock and roll, uh, but maybe broader the entertainment world. Describe that for us. Well, if you were a potential client coming into my office, I gave you a little speech and a little speech went like this. If you expect me to fashion an artificial image for you, uh, an artificial mask um, and say, with this image, I'm gonna make you a star, then I'm gonna send you to my best competitor. If you're gonna work with me, you have to understand 
that music is not about an exchange of pieces of plastic. It is not about an exchange of downloads. It's not about an exchange of money. It's about an exchange of human soul. And here's what I meant. Um, you're a rock and roller. Uh, say you're Steven Tyler or Vera Smith, and you've got an album deadline looming over you, and you have to write a lyric to a song. You sit down at two o'clock in the afternoon in front of a blank computer screen or a blank piece of paper, and you know that you could not possibly write a lyric. In fact, you don't have a clue as to how you've ever written a lyric before. And by four o'clock in the afternoon, there's a lyric in front of you. And my job is going to be to find the gods inside of you that wrote that lyric, to find the soul inside of you that wrote that lyric. You go on stage. On a good night, you feel the pupils of the audience dilating. You feel their eyes widening. You feel their faces melting. You feel their energy um, coming together in a giant communal blob, like a big amoeba. And you feel that common energy reach a pseudopod out to you and shoot the energy, whether it's of 700 people or 70,000 people, through you as if you were an empty pipe. You have an out-of-body experience. You see yourself being danced like a marionette on stage. You feel that audience energy flowing through you as if you were an empty pipe, going to some place around your head, being utterly transmogrified, flowing back down to the audience again. And you see their pupils widening even further. That 70 minutes experience where you feel like you're being danced like a marionette on stage. My job is to find the gods inside of you, the soul inside of you that danced you on that stage. So if you're gonna work with me, you're gonna give me six weeks to study every lyric that you've ever written, every album cover you've ever put out, every interview that you've ever done, and then come out to someplace, wherever it is that's in your environment with no wives, no managers, no assistants, no intercessors of any kind, and it's gonna be just me and you, and my job is gonna be what I call secular shamanism. It's gonna to be to, deep, to dig deep down and find the gods inside of you, find the soul inside of you, and then teach you how to say hello to that self with your hello, how are you, fine, thank you very much, ordinary everyday self. And I will help you stay true to those gods inside of you. So that was the essence of what I did, and it really started because when I was 10 years old, I was a lost kid in Buffalo, New York, my hometown. No other kid wanted to have anything to do with me. My parents didn't have time for me and didn't seem the least bit interested. I was very much alone. And a book appeared in my lap one day and it said, the first two rules of science are these, the truth at any price, including the price of your life, and look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before and then proceed from there. And for the truth at any price, including the price of your life, it gave the example of Galileo. And it told the story all wrong. It told it as Galileo was willing to go to the stake to defend his truth. It took me 30 years to find out that wasn't true, but I needed that heroic version of things. And the example of look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before. Look for things that are invisible to you, things that you and everybody around you take for granted and flush them into visibility. That example was Anton von Leeuwenhoek, who invented the microscope and found the world of what he called animalcules, what we call microbes. Um, today. And so I got started in theoretical physics and microbiology at the age of 10, thanks to that book. And by the age of 12, I was accumulating serious scientific credentials. Um, I had co-designed a computer that won some science fair awards. I built my first Boolean algebra machine. I'd been taken off to a meeting with the head of the graduate physics department at the University of Buffalo. Now, look at this, Richard. Imagine 
you're the head of a graduate physics department. What in the world do you want to have to do with a 12-year-old? Um, <laughs> nothing. But we, I'm sure it was designed as a five-minute courtesy meeting. And instead, we were in his office for an hour discussing the hottest scientific topic of the day, which was Big Bang versus Steady State Theory of the Universe and the interpretation of the Doppler shift. And he came out of his office and he said to my mom, you don't have to study for, or you don't have to save for grad school for him. He'll get fellowships at any grad school he wants uh, in theoretical physics. So that was my start. But at the age of 12, I realized I was an atheist. And then when I was 13, um, which is only a few months after I turned 12 year, or 13 years old, um, the high holidays came up, the most important Jewish holidays of the year. And my parents, who were not observant, um, were very passionate about getting me to these high holiday services. They got me into a suit. They got me into their blue four-door Fraser. They got me all the way to Richmond Avenue where the synagogue was. And then they couldn't get me any further. I refused to leave the car. So there I was hanging on to the frame of the door with both hands. My parents were clawing at my ankles and I had a sudden insight. Galileo accomplished what he did by taking this new military device. It was a tube with a lens at each end and it was designed for horizontal viewing, looking over the horizon to see when the enemy was coming. And he did something extraordinary with it. He turned it up to the heavens. And that's crazy, Richard, because everybody knew what was in the heavens. First of all, it was looking up God's underwear, which is very impolite. At the best, it was looking at the underside of God's living room rug. Secondly, or third, Aristotle had told us exactly what was up there. The circle was the perfect form and the sphere. And so since this was God's world up there in the sky, everything had to be perfect circles uh, and perfect spheres. And what did Galileo discover? These lumpy balls of stone up there circling each other. And he, cha he changed our entire relationship to the universe by turning an instrument from the expected direction horizontal to the unexpected direction up. And Anton von Leeuwenhoek was a draper, so he was importing fabrics into Amsterdam. And he used a lens to look to see how fine the weave was of the fabric. And he decided to turn that lens, which he was using horizontally, in an, uh, an unexpected direction. He turned it down at pond water and ultimately at live human semen. And he discovered this vast world of creatures we'd been living with ever since we evolved as human beings that we hadn't known we shared the world with. Again, the microbial world. So there I am hanging onto the door frame. My parents are clawing at my ankles, willing to drag me up the street like a sack of meat. And I have a sudden insight. Since there are no gods in the sky and no gods beneath the earth, um, where are the gods? There are actually gods in this picture. They're in my parents. They're in this absolute conviction, this ferocious passion with which my parents are willing to mangle me um, to get me up the street to the synagogue. And if those gods are in my parents, then the gods are inside of me. So my job is not to take the lens and turn it up. It's not to take the lens and turn it down. It's to take the lens and turn it inside and find the gods inside of us. Now, this is not original. Freud had done this uh, starting 70 years earlier, um, but that became one of my missions in life because the other mission was to understand every science that my limited mind can understand so I can put together a big picture of the universe and where everything fits into it, including Elizabethan poetry, including rock and roll, including our love for music, including why you and I are sitting here or sitting uh, 2,500 miles apart right now. 
um, discussing this stuff. So that was the beginning of the mission that led me to finding the gods inside with my rock and roll clients. It uh, sounds an awful lot like you describe it as a spiritual experience, not only for you, but for your respective clients who come in, that there's certain, uh, there is a certain requirement in that regard that it be s as such. One of the things I've noticed um, not only in the music that I used to listen to, well, I still listen to it, uh, that I listened to back when I was, was in my teens and early 20s, my favorite artists, uh, was that the music that they sang, the lyrics that they wrote or had written for them, had great meaning, and that those lyrics are as applicable today as they were back then. And that a lot of the folks who have number one hits the lyrics, in many instances, not all, are so focused on that artist's experiences, and they're putting their all, their emotion, their life experience into that particular song, for example, as a piece of music, or any artist, for that matter, who puts themselves wholeheartedly into that. To me, that is... Uh, that sort of exemplify sort of a, a spiritual uh, expression, outer outward expression of them finding themselves. Is that, is that kind of what you were trying to get across to, to your clients? It's, it's very much what I was trying to get across. Look, about 5% of us, very roughly speaking, is our verbal, rational mind. The other 95% of us is the selves below the floorboards of the self. It's your emotional self which often doesn't have a voice. So you hit the age of 11 and a half and you go through this <clears throat> violent biological change. Your hormones start flowing. You start becoming a completely different human being than the being you've been as a child or as a toddler. You, you go through a phase that's called differentiation. You need to get out of your parents' home. You need to show that you have your own envelope of identity, that you have control over your own life. Uh, that you are an individual and you begin to experience things that make you feel as if you're crazy. You experience these emotions that there seem no words for in the English language. And that's especially true today when technology is changing every five years and the world that you grew up in is nothing like the world that your parents grew up in. It has whole new power, human powers that didn't exist before. And whereas your parents have slowly gotten used to these new things, you have been born onto them. Your brain has literally, you know, you're born with twice as many brain cells as you need. And the brain cells that, are, that find themselves useful stick around. And the brain cells that don't seem useful die. And so you have a whole different concatenation of brain cells that are staying alive than your parents did simply because at the age of 18 months, there you were in your cradle or your basket or whatever your parents used to take you around in fiddling with a cell phone or, or, or a, um, an iPad and finding landscapes inside of the internet that your parents never imagined existed. So at 11 and a half, you start having experiences that make you feel crazy. And then along comes a superstar. Let's take Joan Jack, for example. And you see her on stage, you hear the lyrics of her songs, you feel the strength, the emotional messages of her melodies and her rhythms and especially of her stance on stage, the way she stands, the way she holds her body. 
And suddenly you feel you're not alone anymore. Suddenly that superstar has expressed that craziness inside of you and made you realize you're not alone. In fact, you're a movement. Um, there are hundreds of millions of others who feel the way that you do. So the star is not only stepping aside and letting a soul inside of himself or herself take over for the time that he or she is on stage. I mean, Joan Jett is utterly possessed when she, was on, when she is on stage. But again, it's the gods inside of her that mm -hmm. are possessing her. It's her soul that is possessing her. And, but she's also speaking on behalf of the soul of an entire subculture. So you yeah. see that when, for example, in 1976, ZZ Top asked me to come down to Texas and took me over to the mayor's office. Um, and the mayor of Houston named me the official ambassador of Texas culture to the world. Why? Because Texans up until that point felt that they were the, the, cow, the cow pucky on the soles of the shoes of America. They felt that they, they had a culture of its, own, of its own, and their culture, if they tried to express it, they would be put down so hard it was ridiculous. So when Texans tried to make it on the national stage, they pretended they weren't from Texas. Janis Joplin came from Port Arthur, Texas. Um, she went to California and she pretended she was from San Francisco with Big Brother and the Holding Company. Johnny and Edgar Winter went to Connecticut from Texas. They were from something like Beaumont, Texas, and they pretended that they came from Connecticut. People didn't dare confess that they were Texans. Meanwhile, Texas has its own very vivid culture. Um, you and I grew up with textbooks that told us about the founding fathers of our country, and those founding fathers were George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. That is not the way Texas kids grew up. They grew up learning about the founder of Texas, the independent state of Texas, and that founder was Sam Houston. So they have a whole different set of cultural references than we do. And they were very aware of the fact that if you, if you mentioned that you were from Texas, people thought, oh, you, had, you were a farmer who got rich quick lucky because there were uh, oil wells discovered in his backyard and bought a Cadillac and uh, had longhorn steer horns attached to the front and had a, a squirrel fur covering on his steering wheel. <laughs> um, they just took it for granted that you were infernally stupid. And ZZ Top, ZZ Top wanted to turn that around. So they put together a tour called Taking Texas Culture to the World. And it had a 75 foot wide stage in the shape of the state of Texas, tilted at an angle so everybody in the audience could see its shape. They carried two turkey vultures, a, a buffalo, a longhorn steer, and three rattlesnakes with them. And they had scrims behind them they could show the Texas landscape at, at dawn, the Texas landscape at noon, the Texas landscape at sunset. Um, they, the, the basic message was we are loud and we are proud and we are proud to be Texan. So what was I doing as the spokesman for uh, Texas culture, for the official spokesman for Texas culture to the world? Um, I was helping give a, an oppressed subculture a voice. And meantime, when I flew back from Texas, um, the roommate of the guy who'd hired me for ZZ Top was also a music industry person. And he was a friend. And he said, look, you, you, I know your Mondays are sacred to you. You go over every single campaign with every single 
uh, account executive, um, and you don't let anybody get in your way. But I'm telling you, tomorrow, when I get off the seaplane from Fire Island, you have to be at my apartment at 10 o'clock in the morning. So I broke convention. I forgot about my sacred day with my staff members. I was at his apartment by 10 a.m. And this is the story he told me when he arrived. Fire Island had a gay subculture. And its gay subculture had hidden itself away, had done its best to remain discreet, had done its best to be invisible. But meantime, my friend Ray Caviano had been for the last year collecting up-tempo electronic dance records from Europe. And he had decided to take his whole collection of these records, stuff them in a suitcase, take them out to Fire Island with him for the weekend. And he had played some of those records. And all of a sudden, gay men had done something they had never, literally never done before. They were not allowed to dance with each other in public. And they stuck by that prohibition in order to remain invisible. But suddenly, with this extraordinary music coming at them, they lost their inhibitions. They started dancing with each other in public. Now, in dancing, Richard, you dance and you have a few drinks, you have some drugs, God knows what you have. But when the music seizes you, that's another instance of the gods inside of you taking you over completely. Something you don't know takes you over and dances you for half an hour or 45 minutes or an hour and 15 minutes. And then you come off the stage and you're, it takes time for your hello, how are you, fine, thank you very much self to come back. That's your personal experience of the gods inside seizing you, dancing you. Um, well, you would think that the gods inside of these gay guys would be swish, because up until then, when gay people uh, took on a, a feminine a, a, or took on a gay identity, their wrists went limp, they walked like women. Uh, when they could, they were women's clothes. But that is not the gods inside that came out of these guys dancing in this trance-like state. The gods that came out of them were all the icons of masculinity that little four-year-old and three-and-a-half-year-old boys are given and the picture books that their fathers give them. Firemen, um, cowboys, sheriffs, Indian chiefs. So a bunch of uh, two gay guys started flying into my office every few weeks from Paris. And around this music, look, the music was disco. And in the same way that ZZ Top's music expressed the, the hidden soul, the suppressed soul of Texas culture, disco music was expressing the suppressed, repressed soul of the gay community. And it was the anthem with which the gay community came out of the closet. So these two gay guys from Paris started coming into New York City. Um, club scenes were sp spreading all over the place, especially in the meatpacking district around 10th Street and the river in New York City. And they started going to those dance clubs where what Ray Caviano had triggered out on Fire Island was happening big time. And they loved it. It was like a porn paradise for gay men. And they went back to Paris and they wrote a song based on the gods that had come out, that had come out in gay men dancing with each other. And so it was a song about cowboys, Indians, and fire chiefs. It was called Macho, Macho, Macho Man. <laughs> and they called the studio group the village people because they, it was all focused on the village. That's where they saw all the gay dance clubs. Um, and one day I remember riding in from Newark Airport on a in a cab and Macho, Macho, Macho Man came on the radio. And I suddenly realized that cab 
Schreiber had no idea of what he was listening to. He thought he was listening to an ultimate macho song. No, he was listening to an ultimate gay song. So when you express yourself, when the gods inside of you take over, when your soul grabs hold of your esophagus and rattles you up and down uncontrollably, um, that you are also expressing the soul of a group. When you are doing the work that you have done over the years, working with these uh, uh, artists, do you find yourself possessed by the gods within you? Yes. When you, uh, and this is, has nothing to do with hearing any music of any kind. It has right. to do with you being on purpose. Well, here's the trick. Um, Herman Hess, the novelist, said, we all have a dark closet hidden way down deep inside of ourselves um, with 10,000 personalities that we could have become. And my way to understand my artist was to find one of those 10,000 personalities hidden in me that vibrated to the same frequency as the personality that I found in my musicians. Um, so, yes, it was a matter of finding the gods inside of me in order to have a simulation of my artists going on inside of me. For example, with Prince. I, just, I was told that you, you can't work with Prince. Um, he can't do interviews. We, Warner Brothers said, we set him up for two interviews. In the first interview, he was absolutely silent, didn't say a thing. And in the second interview, he tried to strangle the interviewer. So you're just not going to be able to work with him. Well, I made my demands of Prince that I get to study everything he'd ever done and then come meet him in his own environment. Well, his own environment turned out to be the Shea Theater in Buffalo, New York, my hometown, not his. But it's where he was rehearsing for his Dirty Minds tour. And I waited until the rehearsal was over. Um, we went backstage. We found a room where we could be alone, where we could lock, we could lock the door. We locked ourselves in. We started an interview at two in the morning and we ended at about six in the morning. And here are some of the stories I got out of Prince. I asked him, what's your first musical memory? What really turned you on to music? And he said, I was five years old. My father was a jazz musician. My mom took me to see him rehearsing. There he was on stage uh, with the spotlights on him, surrounded by five of the most beautiful women I had ever seen. Okay, well, sex and attention um, and that's what a spotlight implies. That's what 500 empty seats all pointed at his dad imply. Attention. Those are two of the triggering points that trigger an imprinting moment, a passion point, something that sticks with you for the rest of your life. Um, the second thing, uh, big memory, was that his friend Andre Simone had a basement. Now, Prince was five foot two inches tall. And here he was, black, going to mixed schools. You get the shit beat out of you. If you're five foot two, you just get bullied and bullied and bullied. Andre Simone's mother had an unused den in the basement. Um, Prince took it over and he started an alternative culture there, an alternative society. And in his alternative society, he picked up on the ideas of a movement I had helped co-found, the hippie movement. He picked up specifically on the idea that uh, make love, not war. Um, man, just manifest every one of your sexual fantasies and you will rob Ronald Reagan of the ability to start World War III was the basic idea. <laughs> um, so he had an alternative culture based on this. Now, I had started alternative cultures too. In fact, the, the little embryo of the hippie cult movement that I'd started in 1962 had been one of those little alternative cultures 
that I accidentally founded because I didn't fit in anybody else's culture. Any existing clique wanted to throw me out, wanted to keep me as far away as possible. Prince had the same experience. So I had to find that aspect of my own experience to relate to Prince's experience. Now, how well did it work? There was a certain point three years into my campaign with Prince where Prince just went off the radar. He wouldn't talk to me anymore. He wouldn't talk to his managers anymore. So one day, Bob Cavallo, his manager, called and said, look, you're not supposed to know this, but I have the lyrics to Prince's next album. And you're not supposed to see them, but if they show up at your office at 10.30 tomorrow morning, can you tell me what Prince is thinking? And the answer was yes. I got the lyrics. I gave, I told Bob what Prince was thinking. How could I possibly know that, Richard? It wasn't, uh, uh, it wasn't anything spooky and eerie. It, it, it wasn't a, paras a paranormal capacity. Um, it was that one of those 10,000 personalities in the dark closet hidden within me was attuned to Prince. And once it got in tune with Prince, it stayed in tune with Prince. Now it needed new information every year to stay in tune with Prince, but, but it stayed in tune with Prince. Plus I had help. Um, when I was doing John Mellencamp, the second, the first year I flew out to Indiana, I interviewed him and got the story of growing up in Indiana, if you were John Mellencamp out of him, was one of the most amazing stories I had ever gotten in my life. We sat down at nine o'clock in the morning, by four o'clock in the afternoon, we were finished and John was spent. He looked like a hollow scarecrow. scarecrow. He just sat there, incapable of moving because we used all of his energy to get at who he was. But the second year that I went out there, he, he showed me two films that had shaped his life. One was HUD, these I think were both Lawrence Luckenbill films. One was HUD and they were both Paul Newman movies. The other one was Cool Hand Luke. And with HUD, HUD is the story of a young rich rancher uh, or the son of a rich rancher who has a white Cadillac convertible, goes into town every day in his white Cadillac convertible, goes to the bar, picks up the prettiest woman in the place, somebody else's wife who's bored, and does, you know, it's implied what he does with her. Then one day, the authorities come to his dad and say, look, we've got a hoof and mouth problem in, the, in this neighborhood, and we're going to have to kill off all your cattle. Now, if you're a cattleman, all of your wealth is in your cattle. That's like wiping out your 401k. That's like wiping out everything you own. Well, HUD is not particularly in favor of becoming the son of a poor man overnight and not having his white Cadillac and housewife privileges. Um, so he decides to steal the cattle in the middle of the night and sell them outside the state. Now, if he does that, and if there is hoof and mouth disease, he's gonna be spreading the hoof and mouth disease all over the place. Well, by dawn, it occurs to him that he owes an obligation to his fellow human beings, and he cannot possibly do that. And the family sells the cattle after all. And John, when he finished showing me the movie, gave me his interpretation. And his interpretation was brilliant. It was, first you rebel against your father, then you become your father. <laughs> and in Prince, and, and in Prince, I saw that very transition happening. For the first five years or four years that I was working with Prince, he was the scamp. He was the rebel. He was the one with the do anything you want sexually subculture um, surrounding him. And then I went out to see him at Nassau Coliseum, which is only a 30 to 40 minute cab ride from my home. And, um, and the lighting as usual was gorgeous. Um, Prince's performance was utterly beyond belief, was jaw-dropping, it always was. But then he got down and humped the stage. 
And after he was humping the stage, his body went absolutely still. And at first we thought, oh, this is just part of the act and the suspense and the tension grew. And then the suspension the suspense and tension began to break because we began to became, become afraid that Prince had had a heart attack. And he was up there on stage in trouble. And all of us felt we needed to rush up and save him. And then we heard a voice coming out of the ceiling. The ceiling was about six stories above us. And the voice was the voice of God. So what was this telling us? Prince was becoming his father. Whether it was his father in heaven or his father on earth, the two were the same. And the voice of Prince's father was beginning to speak to him. And now it was time for Prince to go through the HUD transition, which he did. And that's when he became, became the artist formerly known as Prince. And he went into some very mysterious years because he was wrestling with God. And this had a big impact on, of all things, his filmmaking. Because with um, uh, Purple Rain, he had made an outrageously successful film. Um, it was a film that grabbed you by the gut. You just could not resist this film. And the story of how I helped save this film, because Warner's was going to can it, is, is in the book, Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me. But then he made a second film. For a year, he was in France um, making a second film called Under the Short Moon. And I got a call from Bob Cavallo saying, you got to be out here tomorrow because at noon, we're showing the film to 600 kids on Sunset Boulevard in one of those theaters where every kid has a little dial at his seat and can turn it up if he likes the scene and down if he dislikes the scene. And uh, you've got to see the movie. So I came out to see the movie and when it was over, I went out to the sidewalk and looked for Bob. There was a big crowd out there and found him and said, Bob, congratulations, you've got a movie. It was a very satisfying movie. Now look, Purple Rain had been a masterpiece. This was not a piece of film history the way Purple Rain was, but it was a very good and very satisfying film. Then two weeks later, I got another call from Bob saying, you've got to be out here tomorrow afternoon. Uh, Prince has changed the end of his film. So I went out there. I did my four-hour interview with Kristen Scott Thomas, who Prince had discovered. She was a, an, an English actress at the Académie Française in Paris. And they don't let you. That's the National Theater, French National Theater. They, if you speak English, they don't even let you mop the floors there. And yet Kristen Scott Thomas was one of their most successful actresses. Um, Kristen Scott Thomas was absolutely astonishing as an individual. And then when the building closed, they waited until the building closed. They put me in a, in a supply closet. They had a nine inch screen, TV screen on a bottom shelf with a VCR on which I could watch when I wasn't supposed to be there. I wasn't supposed to have seen the film when I could watch Under the Cherry Moon. The first version had been satisfying. This version simply didn't work. Why? Because Prince killed his character off in the end. His character is a scamp. And in the first version, the scamp gets the girl in the end. Uh, in this version, the scamp gets into a uh, high-powered speedboat, takes off into the middle of a lake, and then suddenly blows up, and that's the end of it. So the character you've just invested 70 minutes in now disappears. There was no satisfaction to this film. But it was obvious why Prince had to do it. His father. Um, his God in heaven, whatever you want to call it, was speaking to him and saying, you are no longer that scamp. Now you have to apply ethics. You have to apply morality. And there is no way as an ethical human, you can let that scamp live. You, for his sins, you have to kill him in the end. It made perfect sense 
from a Prince point of view. It didn't make sense from an entertainment or film point. And the result was um, that um, Purple Ring was made for $9 million and grossed $90 million. Under the Cherry Moon was made for something like a million dollars and grossed something like $9 million. In other words, it turned out to be a waste of everybody's time and effort. Um, just because Prince was first rebelling against his dad and then becoming his dad. Yeah, it's interesting how we all tend to do that. I've, I've even thought about that in the context of my father, um, who's 89 this year. And wow. I just, and I just turned 60 and he's still doing very well. He and my mother are safe at home in Phoenix Great. and, and all of that good stuff. But every once in a while, I can, I sort of hear my father's voice coming out of my mouth, you know, kind right. of stuff. And I quote him quite often. I, you know, he doesn't like it when I call him a wise man. Um, but he's had some good, uh, very good wise sayings. One of them was, uh, uh, eat, drink and be merry in moderation because nobody gets <laughs> out of this world alive. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the other one was uh, find a job you are going, you love to do because you're going to be doing it for a long time. Don't get stuck like me. Now, my father got stuck maybe for a short period of time, but then he went back to junior college, got his computer programming degree with the fanfold paper and the punch cards back in the 70s and, and certainly went on to do some, some wonderful things and, and was happy. He was happy with what he, was, uh, what he had accomplished, not to mention the family that he had created and raised with, uh, with my mother. How many um, kids? Six. I am the wow. oldest male, but I have two older sisters, a younger brother and two younger sisters. And it wasn't Norman Rockwell, but uh, it wasn't uh, those uh, TV Hollywood movies at Thanksgiving time with the family at the dinner table having a dysfunctional, I would say moment, but usually it goes on for an hour and a half. You know? Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, we had our squabbles like siblings do, but, you know, th there is no estrangement within our Good. family at all, which is wonderful. Um, you know, we check in on one another and, and uh, I've got a very a very protective older sister. Uh, you know, she's made some certain comments about my first wife and then my second wife prior to my marrying that they better do the right thing or else they'll, they'll be listening. They'll be talking to her. Right. Um, so when it comes to fathers, you know, my father, he's, he's kept pretty private about his, his interior life, if you will, his spiritual walk. Right. I don't know if he really has one, but what I do know is that he cares a great deal about his family and his wife. And I'm sure he's very proud of the fact that he will leave behind quite a legacy because of the diverse talents that we all, that we all share. Um, but when, when you start to look through all of the people that have walked through your door, uh, when, and I'm speaking now, as individuals, not any, you know, there may have been, you know, the bands of course come through, but they're, they're all made up of individuals. Okay. Right. Each time they walk into your office, you must get almost an immediate, I will say energetic sense that these people, they've got something or they're not quite there yet or no, this it's not going to work at all. Is that a fair assessment of how you would evaluate whether or not you would 
take on a client or would you take everybody on and work as hard as you could from the gods that would come out of you right. to make them what they wanted to be? Well, it's both. I was watching, I think it was 1982, and I watched every career in the industry. I watched to see what I could learn from the, from the good things that were done, the innovative things that were done, and I watched so I could learn from the mistakes and second-guess those mistakes. And I saw two stars who were about to become two hit wonders and then were about to disappear. One was Billy Idol and one was John Mellencamp. And one day I was driving my rental car on Sunset Boulevard and a song came on the radio and it did something that's only happened to me once in my life. It gripped me so hard that I could not possibly drive anymore. I had to find a parking space and just stop and listen to the song. And it was John Mellencamp's Hurt So Good. And so something in John's music was hitting me harder than I could remember having been hit by any other song, including Beatles and Rolling Stones um, songs. Um, and and I, saw, I saw how John's career could be changed so he could become permanent. Plus, I had developed this secular shamanism technique for soul diving in you, and it worked with John. I mean, his manager came into my office and said, John would like to work with you. And I said, only under the following terms and conditions. And he said, no, absolutely not. And then he called a day later and he said, well, I ran it past John. And uh, John said, well, if that's the way he does things, that's the way he does things. And as mm -hmm. I said, John's story was one of the most authentic and astonishing stories I had ever heard. Um, but again, this goes back to where, who I am, where the gods inside of me meet the gods inside of my artist. I never had a childhood and I never had a teenagehood because other kids did not want me around, period. You know, I started all that scientific, my collecting scientific credentials at the age of 12. Um, so I was suffering from childhood and adolescent deprivation. And so when I heard John's story, it rang a bell with me precisely because I had never had a teenagehood. And by absorbing John's story, I was vicariously getting the teenagehood that I had never had. I mean, John was explaining to me how uh, they used to jump into his car and go to a different town and they would uh, pick up girls and they would get into fights and they found it wonderful and glorious to get into fights and how on the girls they would find certain unmentionable things we can't discuss here on, uh, you know, uh, general purpose radio. Um, but at any rate, the, all the story, and then John explained how during high school, because he was a total fan of these Paul Newman movies, he had seen himself as the Paul Newman in a big, in, in a cinemascope screen. And then he got out of high school, and all of a sudden, he was no longer the Paul Newman at the center of the screen. All of a sudden, he was on a huge screen in which he was one pixel, lost, utterly lost in the crowd. And he got so discouraged that when he got up in the morning, he didn't have the energy to put his own socks on. Well, I could relate to, to that, too, because after accidentally helping found the hippie movement, hitchhiking and riding the rails on the West Coast, living in a big pink condemned house with 12 other people, never wearing clothes, um, he's got, being naked was so normal to us that it was hard for us to remember that you had to put clothes on to go to the supermarket or you, they would not sell you milk. Um, so, um, after having all of that, 
um, God, I don't know where I was going with this story, but no, I got, uh, look, I would get on a freight, empty freight car, uh, an empty box car, and there, one other guy would get on with me and his face would be reddened from alcoholism and he'd be carrying a bottle and a bag in his hand, a pint of Muscatel. Um, and he'd ask me a question, when was the last time you saw your mother? And I would say, well, I haven't seen her in, in eight months. And he would go, oh, no, 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 you cannot do that. You have to go back to see your mother. Policemen said this to me. All kinds of people said this to me. So I went back home to see my mother um, after uh, a year. And when I got home, all of a sudden, the world that I helped put together uh, disappeared from my mind as if it never existed, as if, yeah. as if it had never even been a dream. And I became so demotivated, I couldn't pick up my socks in the morning and put them on. So I could relate precisely to what John was saying. So yes, you do look at the gods inside of you in order to find the gods inside of your artists. Um, but there's another thing. When I was in high school, I had been just as unpopular as ever before, but the high school had certain functional committees. And the popular kids liked to be named president, vice president, the most popular girl got to be the secretary, and the most popular Jew got to be treasurer. Um, but that meant, fine, once you won the election, you didn't do anything. Um, you just basked in the glow of your own glory. But there were other positions where you had to actually do things. And one was the head of the committee. Every morning, we had a 45-minute assembly before we went up to class. And as the head of the program committee, you programmed two of those assemblies a week, and you emceed all five of them. So I was, I was elected to the head of the program committee for two years in a row which means those kids who hated me had to see me on a stage in front of them every single day at the beginning of the day. Um, so one day the juniors came to me and they said, we're, we're having a dance, could you advertise it for us? Now Richard, if there was a dance or a party of any kind anywhere in Buffalo, New York, I was invited to stay as far away as possible, preferably Cleveland. Um, <laughs> nobody wanted me anywhere near these things. So the kids didn't realize how ironic it was that they were asking me to advertise their dance. But I put a piece of music on the turntable behind the stage and I went up on the stage and I can't dance. My parents sent me to dancing school for a year. I can't do the box step, I can't do the waltz, I can't do the foxtrot, I can't do any of them. So I did my version of a dance and it looked like a Looney Tune drawn on LSD. It was one <laughs> of the craziest sights you've ever seen. It was unlike any form of human movement you have ever seen before. And I saw the pupils of the audience dilating, and I saw their eyes widening, and I saw their faces melting. I looked in particular at the girl who hated me the most, and her face was utterly melted into what I was doing. And I saw them melt together in that amoebic blob and reach its pseudopod out to me. And I had an auto body experience. I felt I was on the ceiling watching all of this take place. And I watched that energy go up to somewhere around here what Peter Townsend calls the Godhead and be utterly transmogrified and flow back down to the audience and see their pupils widening even more. It was an astonishing experience. And when I finished, the audience did something they had never done before in my time at that school and would never do again at my time at that school. They surged down to the foot of the stage. They picked me up and put me on their shoulders as if they had been practicing this all their life. They carried me out of the auditorium they carried me up the walkway to the building where we held classes, and only then did they put me down. So I knew what it was like to be on stage. I knew what it was like to have that ecstatic experience. 
And I had been in pursuit of that ecstatic experience since I was 13 years old. And now in the world of rock and roll, a form of music I had never listened to, because I listened to Rachmaninoff, Beethoven, Bartok, Stravinsky, Mozart, um, in the world of a music I did not know. What did I find? What I'd been searching for since I was 12 and 13 years old, the gods inside. Mm. Well, I have to tell you that I uh, have a, a very strong affinity towards what, what's called classical music, the artists, the composers you just mentioned. Uh, I actually joined a classical music CD club way back uh -huh. when, and I still have those discs, and every once in a while I'll throw one in. There's just something about that. But one of the interesting observations, sort of a sidebar here, uh, that I heard someone make was that, and this is not to criticize the music of today, Okay, I am not going to be that old man who says, oh, our kids, oh, that music's just, that's of the devil. No, 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 no. Right. I personally believe that every expression of music has at its core a reason why it exists from the musician right. and or the who, who wrote it. But um, when, it, when, it came to, um, when it came to classical music, uh, and I have to give, I, 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 can't, I wish I could remember my music teacher in, in fifth or sixth grade, her name, but they had a, cor a course called uh, Music Memory. And you had to memorize a piece of classical music, uh, the name of it, uh, I think it was the composer, maybe what year it was, and so forth. And if you were able to do so and, rem and, and, and pass the, the, the exam, when I lived in Phoenix, and that's where I grew up, you got to go on a trip to Grady Gamage Auditorium in Tempe, Arizona on the ASU campus and listen to our Phoenix Symphony at that time playing many of these pieces. And one of the things that, that one of the observations that was made about today's music, that's where I was going, is that it doesn't have the fullness nor the depth in it that the music of the 60s 70s 80s and what they were referring to can be best epitomized if you will by the music of they weren't rock and rollers get you mind you but they were my favorite artists by the artists like john denver dan fogelberg harry chapin where you didn't just have a guitar and a drum and so forth sometimes you would have full orchestras playing and it just filled in and it was it's so incredible whereas with the synthesized music there, it doesn't have the same fullness you know what i'm saying well i think what's missing is this when i was in the business again if you had that first meeting with me and uh, i gave you my little speech i told you we're going to discard terms like product you do not make a product you make a raw piece of your soul we're gonna discard terms like market. You do not have a market. There are hundreds or hundreds of millions of human beings who resonate to your frequency if we do what we need to do um, correctly. Um, we, there's no such thing as branding. You, you find what is in you, that essential self that makes your music for you. That's what you share with your audience, not mm. some artificial concoction that you paste on called right. branding. Well, right. when I left, the business in 1988, though that fight, the battle against those terms disappeared. Those terms took over. 
the result is that in 2005, my friend um, Tom Silverman, the founder of Tommy Boy Records, had something called the New Music Seminar, and he was bringing it back to life after 10 years of absence. And he invited me to come as a special guest. Um, and um, I saw on stage a guy who I had known for years, um, Ted Cohen, and he was working with, God, I forget what his, uh, Ben Harper, I think it was. He was working with one of the most extraordinary, soulful artists of our time, uh, in other words, of the early 2000s. And he was bragging about how many ginger ale ads he'd managed to land for this guy, how many product endorsements he'd managed to land for this guy. Yeah. Well, product endorsements may make money, but they, de they, they strip away the soul of the artist. The artist can no longer speak directly to his audience. He is a corporate product. And you cannot do that to people who sing with blood, guts, and fire. So there's no one speaking from the human soul today. And that's what's missing. I couldn't agree with you more in that regard. Howard Bloom is my guest today. Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me. It is a search for soul in the power pits of rock and roll. And I think that uh, this is a good uh, a lesson to be learned by all of us, uh, that we need to be true to ourselves and that which we are here to do. And we need to find out what that is that we're here to do. And you can do that, especially during 2020, the year of perfect vision by going within with that perfect vision and getting in touch with uh, yourself. Uh, I've often said, Howard, that it's a scary thing sometimes for us to, to uh, spend time alone with ourselves and to, to learn about ourselves because you know, there's a lot of scary stuff there, but there's a lot of good stuff too. And I hope people will do that. I really thank you so much for the time. I wish we had more and I'm hoping we can get together again uh, and hopefully sooner rather than later right. uh, to, to continue this conversation because I have to say that, that your attitude and your focus, your uh, philosophy, if you will, as you've shared with us, especially at the beginning of the program, uh, is a philosophy that people can apply to their own individual lives uh, in terms of allowing, as you say it, those gods to come out of them. Boy, what a difference this world would make if, if we all would just do that. And I thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I also want to ask you three final questions uh, before we go uh, that I ask all of my guests and I may have asked you in some fashion. You may have answered them in some fashion during the interview, but I like to ask them pointedly. Before I do, though, however, I want to mention to our listeners that uh, Tell Me Your Story is here Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Monday mornings at 1 a.m. We do stream live at richarddugan.com, podcasts at SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, and many other locations. And if you can support our work, PayPal and Patreon accounts are there for your security as well as mine. And we thank you though for all those who have helped us and who will help us financially. And we certainly hope that you will join us in uh, participating in our 2020, the year of perfect vision campaign by spending some time within. Our first question is, who is Howard Bloom? Author of seven books, appears once a week on 545 radio stations, but most of all tries to take all the sciences that my limited brain can comprehend, pull them together with all of the arts, and put them together in a big picture that shows where we belong in this cosmos and what our meaning in this cosmos is. 
What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? Well, I want to wake people up to what you just described. I want to wake people up to the gods within. And I want to wake them up to seeing those gods in a cosmic context, um, in the context of just about everything that we humans can know. And I want to open us up with brand new questions so that we come up with answers that even I and you cannot imagine. And finally, what is your life's purpose? Well, I think we've just summed up my life's purpose. My life's purpose is to raise the big questions that move science forward and to get science to recognize that the realm of the human spirit is one of the most important things that science can come to understand. It's one of the most amazing manifestations of this universe um, available to us. Howard, thank you again for joining us. And uh, it's great to have you back on the program again. It's great to see your smiling face. <laughs> and I hope that we get to uh, do this again very soon. I will touch base uh, with Ms. Shapiro and we will set up another time here shortly before the end of 2020. That sounds terrific to me. We'll see you soon, Richard. I'm Richard Dugan. I thank you for listening to Tell Me Your Story, new paradigms for a new world, giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true until our next broadcast podcast. Love to love.